Well, we're celebrating one more thing this morning, and that is that Noah Satterfield is preaching the sermon. Noah is in his second year of residency with us. One of the ways we like to talk about our church, think about our church, is as a greenhouse that anybody can come in and find new life in Jesus, can grow, can thrive, and some people will be planted here over the long haul, and some people will be sent out uh, to some other place. And we don't pretend to know what God is going to do in Noah's life, but we do know, Noah, that we are thankful for the ways you make our greenhouse better. If you may remember, eight months ago, uh, Noah preached his first sermon out in the field. Does anyone remember the field? Was anyone here during the field days? So this is Noah's first time to preach inside. Yeah. Moving on up. Yeah. Moving on up. Ladies and gentlemen, join me in welcoming Noah Satterfield. Thank you. Thank you all. Uh, So good morning. Glad to be back. (laughs) Uh, welcome to Lake Forest Church Davidson. As Michael said, my name is Noah Satterfield, and I am the youth ministry resident here, not a pastor. <laughs> so I'm excited to be here with you all today. Uh, the past couple weeks, I had to miss out on some things, which is a long story, but I had to miss out last week on our annual serve day. Even though I wasn't able to go, I got to see a lot of it through Hannah Berlin's Instagram stories. and got to see our community come together at the Y, all as one church, and go out and serve in the community together as our worship service. I got to see so many different projects happening and so many faces of joy as I look through pictures of y'all going and worshiping others through your service to them. So worship isn't always singing and listening to the sermon on a Sunday morning. Worship can lead us to get down and dirty and get out into our community. Real worship causes real change, and that's not always real fun. And some of y'all may have felt that last week. And we'll get to see another worship service after this service when we see Hannah get baptized together. So that'll be fun. And today we're going to be talking about a book of the Bible that tells us a little bit about what it means to worship and the importance of worship to our community. Y'all might be thinking that since we skipped a week of the story last week that we might finally be getting to the New Testament. And I wish I could tell you all that. But today we're looking at one of the little lesser known books of the Old Testament, the book of Ezra. So this year we are preaching through the big picture of the Bible, what we are calling the story with a capital S. Since the beginning of time, God has been writing a great story in this world that we all get to be a part of and find our place in. The Bible tells us what we need to understand about who God is and who we are and how we relate to him. And sometimes it can be confusing and shocking since it's really big and it can be tempting to give up hope that we could ever study the Bible on our own. And so through our Sunday sermons and through our additional resources we've been setting out, we are taking 2021 aside to go through the big picture together to see how you and I and the people in our lives are invited to come and find completion in the redemptive work of Jesus. So previously on the story, in the beginning God created the world and created humanity and his own image. But humanity, you and I, have not chosen a close relationship with God and instead chose to rebel. In response to humanity's rebellion, God has promised to bless all his people through the family of Abraham and Sarah. And that family became a people, the Hebrew people, and the people unified into a kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, but then the kingdom divided into two kingdoms, 
and the people were conquered and taken into exile. Assyria took the northern kingdom into exile, and then Babylon came in and took all the kingdoms into exile. Babylon burned Jerusalem to the ground, burned God's temple to the ground, left a few people back to live in the rubble, and then took everyone else into exile, into Babylon. And now we're at Ezra, a book that tells us a little bit behind the heart of worship. But in the Jewish tradition, Ezra and Nehemiah were one unified work. Nehemiah is the book right after Ezra. And they tell us one story about the Israelites' gradual return from Babylon to the Promised Land, reclaiming their identity as the covenant people of God. The story covers a huge time period, though, about 140 years, which is longer than the entire New Testament. And it focuses on three key figures and three key events. You have Zerubbabel and the temple, Ezra and the scriptures, and Nehemiah and the, the big wall. Each of these figures focus on a key part of Israel's identity as God's people, trying to reemphasize who they are in a, after a period of time where they were forced to be something they were not. So remember ABP, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, that thing Michael talked about way back when? We're finally on P, Persia, the last stage of Israel's exile. And when the Persian Empire came into play and conquered Babylon, meaning they, took all, they also took over all of Israel, they let the exiles go back to their land. The Babylonian strategy when they conquered people was to take some of them out of their home, like the leading figures, like Daniel, when we talked about last week, and bring them to Babylon with the goal of brainwashing them and brainwashing them to become Babylonians. They would force them to forget their identity and give them new names, forget their customs, forget their rituals, and learn about Babylon to become Babylonians. And not everyone was taken. Sometimes families were ripped apart and the kids or the parents would be left behind and the others would be taken and they would be forced to be something they weren't. And this was for 70 years. So they would get separated for 70 years, never seeing each other again, maybe. But Persia was different. When Persia conquered people, they would allow the captive nations to go back to their homes. They thought by doing this, they would uh, lessen the risk of revolution so they could control all their land easier because Persia would let little kingdoms do what they wanted instead of forcing them to be something else. And the book of Ezra begins with this. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. So when Persia conquered Babylon, God worked through the king Cyrus to let all the Israelites go back to their homeland. After a long period of 70 years that the prophet Jeremiah, who we talked about a couple weeks ago, predicted. And over the next 140 years, waves of exiles led by Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah would return to the rubble of their home. And you're probably thinking that since we're talking about the book of Ezra, we'll probably talk about the guy named Ezra but we're not. We're talking about our man Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah. Zerubbabel and this other guy, Joshua, a priest, led the first waves of exiles back to their home. And when they got there, the first thing they decided to do was this. They built an altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both morning and evening sacrifices. I know when I get back from a long trip, I want to throw my suitcase to the side, go chill out on the couch, forget about everything, and watch some TV. Zerubbabel's squad did not do this. 
They threw, their ca- they threw their suitcase to the side, sure, but when they got back, they went and built an altar to worship God. The first thing they did was to rebuild the way to access God and worship him. But before they, figured, before they figured out how they were going to live in the rubble, how they were going to find food in a city of destruction, or how they were going to deal with all the people that were still living there, they went and built an altar to worship God. And now we're at what Addie read for us earlier today. After the Israelites have lived in Jerusalem for a few months, they're ready to rebuild the temple. This thing that Holly talked about way back in the day that King Solomon built where God's presence came and dwelled in the temple to be with the people of Israel. But before they could get to the building of the temple, a few things happened that followed the same pattern that Solomon did when he built the temple. They built it in the same month They used all the same materials. They hired all the same people and all the same kingdoms to come and help build this giant thing. And they all celebrated the same festivals. So they were all doing the same thing Solomon did. And then if we think back to the tabernacle, this thing, this tent that followed Israelite and Moses wherever they went through the wilderness, they would stop, rebuild this temple, or rebuild the tent so God's presence could be with them. So the temple the place where God's presence now was, is crucial to Israel's identity and crucial to the rebuilding after the exile. The people remembered it as the house of Yahweh, where memories, traditions, symbols, people, and rituals nourished their lives. And once they finally got back from exile after 70 years, they really wanted to rebuild this temple, this, this place of identity and connection with God. And the rebuilding of the temple is the central focus of the Old Testament, the entire Old Testament. Once they wanted this place where God could dwell with them, it was the Jewish people's crowning achievement. When the temple was destroyed, Israel was in exile. The goal of most of the prophets and most of the Old Testament leading to this time was rebuilding the temple and coming back from exile, rebuilding the way back to God's presence with them. So the temple the one that still stood during the time of Jesus was finally built. So what now? What was there left to do? I don't know about y'all, but what seems after a long, fast-paced job, I would like to rest and recover from all the hard labor. But again, the Israelites weren't done yet. Like before, the first thing they did once the temple's foundation was laid was worship God. The builders and priests, with trumpets and cymbals, sang to the Lord, For he is good, his steadfast love endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Could you imagine this moment? It's hard for me to think of a time where I felt so much joy that all I wanted to do was sing, dance, and praise the Lord. But imagine this. Seventy years ago, a prophet, Jeremiah, told you or your parents or both of you that you were going to be kicked out of your home for 70 years, almost a full lifetime, and live in a land that was not your own. But this was the year they finally got out, the year they finally got to come back, the year the prophecy came to pass. It reminds me of when an Olympic athlete wins a gold medal. They finally get their uh, crowning achievement, that thing they've strived for all their life. And when they finally reach their end goal, they break. Sometimes they hold their homeland flag up and will, like wrestling, they'll run around the mat cheering and shouting with joy because they just accomplished the biggest achievement of their entire life. 
I imagine it was the same for the Israelites. They have heard about the end of the exile all their life, and they have finally reached the point when the exile was over and the temple was rebuilt. The temple renewed their hope and the promises of God so that they could sing part of Psalm 136. He is good. His love towards Israel endures forever. And one of the best sermons I've ever heard on that psalm was preached here. However, (laughs) this wasn't the only response. Ezra 3.12 says, But many of the older priests and Levites, family heads who had seen the former temple, wept aloud when they saw the foundations of this temple being laid, while many others still shouted for joy. So rather than singing and dancing, there is a whole other group of elders at the same place weeping at the side of the new temple. They remembered what it was like before it was burned to the ground. They were sent to exile and came back in their, in their lifespan. They lived in Jerusalem before the exile, so they were, the weeping could have, and this weeping, we don't know if it was a weeping of joy or a weeping of sorrow. So the elders could not have imagined a true restoration that did not include the rebuilding of a temple. And after 70 years of being forced to be something they were not, they returned to the rubble of their homeland. They didn't return to the home as they left it. No, they returned to rubble. It was all burned to the ground. It was all torn apart by Babylon. And they finally got to return home after struggling to know who they were as a people, after being forced to be something they were not their entire life in Babylon. So when they finally got back, it was going to be an emotional experience. They got to rebuild the the temple, this key aspect to the Jewish identity, showing that they were leaving that Babylonian life behind and renewing their identity as the people of God. And when they responded to this experience, memories of old, the old temple flooded their mind, and they could have begun to weep because the same, as, for the same reason that the group shouted for joy. But it also could have been a weeping of sorrow. The temple was rebuilt, but it wasn't the same as the first temple. It didn't have that same majesty as the first temple. So when the first temple was rebuilt, God's presence came down and dwelled in the temple. But this time, that the, it, the Bible doesn't tell us if that happens or not. The temple gets rebuilt, but we don't know if God's presence comes down. And I think it's because he had a different plan, which we'll talk about a little later. And that plan was that we were going to become the temple of God if we believe or if we ever come to believe in Jesus. And again, this experience reminds me of an Olympian that wins a gold medal. Sometimes they don't always run around with the flag. Sometimes they fall to their knees and start crying. But we know it's the same. They're experiencing the same thing as the guy with the joy. When they fall to their knees, they're remembering, all, all they, uh, they're remembering everything they accomplished leading to this like, stri- crowning achievement. They, they could have remembered uh, coach, previous coaches or grandparents that might have passed away that couldn't see the moment. They're still joyous that they just won, but they're, they're remembering something that couldn't be there. So even though they won the gold medal, they're crying. And we don't know if they're crying because of joy or crying because of sorrow. But we know they're experiencing the same thing as the people with joy. Then something curious happens. The author tells us, no one could distinguish the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping because the people made so much noise. And that sound was heard from far away. So this event is a watershed moment where people respond in two very different ways, but it comes up as one shout. 
and we couldn't tell the difference between the shouts of joy or the shouts of weeping. And I think that's crazy. I couldn't imagine a time where I walk up to somewhere and all these people in the middle are singing and dancing and shouting with joy, but some are weeping, and I wouldn't be able to tell what's going on. I don't know if they're, like, it, I, it just blows my mind that they all, you can't tell the difference between the sounds or between, like, who's happy and joyous or who's weeping. This foundation of the temple is laid, and people are singing and dancing while some are weeping. I think, again, I think it's like the Olympian. Sometimes they celebrate with joy, and sometimes they cry with they fall to their knees and cry and break. But both are appropriate responses to the same event. These two very different responses show us a little bit about the heart of worship. Both groups brought their full selves and all of their emotions before God at the temple, the place of worship. And the responses are lifted up as one shout, and though they are very different responses, they are one unified shout of worship to God. And I think we can learn something about the heart of worship from that, from how the Israelites responded to the rebuilding of the temple. I think there's a reason that we couldn't tell the difference between the weeping and the joy, and why they were heard as one sound together. I think it's because both were worshiped to God. Both emotions came together as one voice. And I might think, and I think this tells us that we need to rethink how we worship. The Hebrew word for worship means to literally throw ourselves in front of God in reverence. It doesn't tell us how to do it or when to do it, but just to put all ourselves at the feet of God, worshiping who he is. So one of the things I think this meaning of worship can help us think about is that worship can happen at any time. Worship isn't just a Sunday morning thing. It isn't just the singing we do or the sermon we hear. It can be like serve day. It can be like baptism. So much stuff can be considered worship. It can happen at any time and any place. Earlier I said God's presence didn't re-enter the temple because he had a different idea. In 1 Corinthians, it says, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? And in 1 Corinthians 6, it says, Do you know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? If you believe, or in the future, if you ever believe in Jesus, he tells us that he will always be with us and he ain't lying. When we believe in him, his spirit comes to dwell in us rather than in a temple. And we have this incredible opportunity for, to have God with us always. And instead of going to the temple, we can go directly to him wherever we are. So we have become an avenue where we can glorify God anywhere we are. And Romans 12.1 says that if we present, we present ourselves as a holy sacrifice, both holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual worship. Because Jesus chose to dwell in our hearts instead of the temple, everything we do is worship. There's this idea from a French piece, Jean-Pierre de Cassade, called the sacrament of every moment, <laughs> where worshiping God can be in every single moment of our lives, and we can hear from God in all those moments. And another one, 1 Corinthians 10 says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So your work, your athletics, your conversations with strangers at a coffee shop, sitting here in church right now, all of this is worship because through Jesus, we have become what the exiled Israelites wanted so badly, 
a way to worship and glorify God in our relationships with him wherever we are. Also, throwing ourselves at the feet of God shows us that worship is a two-way, conversation, or two-way relationship where we can bring our full, true self to God. Since it's a two-way relationship, we don't have to hide ourselves. God is in us. Nothing is too messy, too painful, or too hard for him to handle. And God, God responds to our worship. He responds at, by showing himself as a personal, loving, and gracious father who shapes us through our worship. He fashions us into his image as we seek to know more about him and who he is. And this can be both positive and negative. Worship is not based on this idea whether we have a right mental state to worship. There's a belief that if we don't have it all together, or if we don't have the right feeling, we haven't really worshiped, and we can't really worship. And this is so far from the truth. Worship can happen anytime, anywhere, no matter how we feel. And God responds to that, no matter how we feel. We just need to show up and respond, and God does the rest. And when we look through the book of Psalms, that big book in the middle of your Bible, if you open it up right to the middle, it's probably there, um, it shows us this whole spectrum of the human emotion. We see psalms of anger, psalms of joy, psalms of happiness, psalms of sorrow, and all of this is being brought to God in worship. So many of the songs we sing today are based off of those psalms. And all these emotions are brought to God because emotions are a central experience, of hum- a central part of the human experience. That's why we see the exiled Israelites both weeping and dancing with joy and why it was one sound. They're bringing all of who they are to God and worship at his temple. They aren't trying to hide their emotions, but leaning into it as a way of worshiping God and relying on who he is. And worship doesn't always rely on positive emotions. Worship relies on all of who we are, every experience we've had, and all the emotions we feel. God wants us to bring it all to his feet. Again, the Hebrew word for worship literally means to throw ourselves down in reverence. Think about that. Literally throwing ourselves, all of who we are, at the feet of God is what it means to worship. Real worship will bring about real change, and that is not always real fun. It can lead to emotions like sadness and grief, or it can lead to emotions like happiness and joy, and all of that's okay. We bring it all to God at his feet. There's a reason the Israelites brought all their emotions to God. It's because worship is a two-way relationship where he wants to know all of who we are as we come to him. And since now he dwells in our hearts, or he might one day come to dwell in our hearts, he knows us more than we know ourselves and knows all the emotions that we feel. Because of this, we can bring everything we are to him in worship, no matter where we are and no matter how we feel. And like the exiled Israelites, each of us will worship in our own way. We bring our own experience and our own emotions to the table when we worship, so it can look very different than your neighbor, but all of it will be heard the same by God. You can fully engage yourself in the way you were created to worship. We can live in the uniqueness of what God is calling us to be in this moment. We don't have to compare our worship to others or to our neighbor. We have the freedom to worship the way in which we are called in this moment. We have the freedom to bring it from our head to our heart, bringing all of who we are and all of what we feel to God in worship. So as we begin to move to worship, 
I have a question for y'all. What would it look like to give yourself more fully to God in worship or during worship? Maybe you feel like you're in the rubble or you're forced to being something you're not. And you should, maybe you uh, lean into those emotions this week or you lean into those emotions and bring them to God. Or as we sing these next two songs, you lean into your emotions during those songs and just let God speak. Or maybe you're full of joy uh, and all you need to do is dance and shout loudly. So when we sing, shout the song out. Or when we go to this baptism later, that's a joyous experience. So we'll get to be dancing and singing together or weeping together, and it will all be heard the same by God. Let's pray. God, thank you for being who you are and being with us no matter where we are and no matter how we feel. Thank you for letting us come and bring all of ourselves to your feet. And just as we worship or start to worship, just lead us to whether you lead us to show our emotions and to bring all of us to who you are and shout it out all in one voice to worship you. Whether if we're weeping, whether if we're angry, whether if we're joyous, or whether if we're happy, let all of us lean into that and have one voice of worship to you. Amen. Okay.